Um, but we are going through the Gospel of John. We've been going through the way of Jesus. And what's kind of been motivating our heart to kind of go through this has been, you know, as me and Phil and Michael and the preaching team have been kind of thinking about it, has just been, well, we need to know what Jesus is like so that we can be like him, right? And it's just been this kind of heart of our church to be like, we want to be like Jesus. Um, we don't want to just think about Jesus. We don't want to just believe, you know, in this sort of theoretical sense. We want to see who he was. You know, we want to, you know, as we dive into this, we want to know who he is and we want to be like him um, in these various aspects what we see. And today, this actually, this message wasn't planned. It, it wasn't part of our series. It was just something that, you know, we switched some schedules around and, you know, I was like kind of digging through John 7 being like, okay, what is there in this scripture that we can look at? And I found for something that was really good for me personally this week as I was studying it, and it was something I realized that we had originally left out that I think is actually a really, really important facet of Jesus' life. Um, one that if we had missed out, I would have been like, man, this is like something that undergirds sort of, I would say, every aspect of how he lived his life was part of it. It's all throughout the Gospel of John. So I'm really glad we got to be able to do this. And that aspect is Jesus's spiritual life. Um, specifically, you know, that's the words that just sound like spiritual life, but specifically how he was led by the Spirit, how everything he did was in connection to the Spirit. So this idea of spiritual life. Um, that word gets thrown around a lot. People say spiritual life to mean all kinds of things today, but we're going to look at what does it look like? How did Jesus walk in the spirits? Um, and how does that kind of exemplify for us what a spiritual life looks like? I think for us, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this book. I've never actually, read it. it's just the title just struck me. Um, it's called The Christian Atheist. Like I, I cannot either recommend or unrecommend this book because I haven't read it, you know, but I, the title struck me and the subtitle of it, you know, he said, they're, you know, the Christian atheists believing in God, but living as if he doesn't. Believing in God, but living as if he doesn't. And he's trying to using that to sort of describe the church in America, how, you know, a lot of people believe in God. You know, they have this understanding, they, you know, they theoretically believe that there is God, that God exists. But functionally, the way they live their lives is no different and is functionally the same as if he didn't as if he didn't. So living as if he didn't. So he's saying like, we're a bunch of Christian atheists. You know, we might call ourselves Christians, but how we live is functionally atheist. And that was something that I think I was challenged by when I first came to Stepping Stone. I'd been involved with churches before, you know, I'd, you know, said the prayers, believed the things, you know, but I always struggled. I always felt like, you know, God was just distant, you know, just this, you know, I wouldn't think about God. I would go months without thinking about God unless somebody brought it up with me you know, functionally, my life was just like, it was as if God didn't exist. And when I first came to Stepping Stone, one of the first things that impressed me was the sense that God was real. They would go and I would, you know, listen to back then it was Pastor Roger, he would talk about things. And the one thing I just, I don't even remember what he said. <laughs> I don't think anyone remembers sermons really past months. And, you know, but I remember, you know, just the sense that like that man, when he's talking, like, he actually, like, he actually thinks God is real, you know, like, that's actually the sense that I get, and, and I was like, I, I want that, you know, I want to live in that kind of functional way where God is actually, like, present in this kind of way, and, you know, that, that just challenged me for years, just that was the one thing, I was just like, well, God is real and living, and I saw that in the people, and, you know, in, in not just, you know, them doing Christian things, but how they saw their lives, how they incorporated, how God was just a part of everything they did, so I want to start this morning by asking this question, 
How much of your life outside of church activities would functionally be different if you didn't believe in God? I'm not just talking about, okay, morally, I would make this decision or I wouldn't make this decision, but functionally, like, do you live with this kind of sense and reality that God is part of every decision, every breath, everything, you know, he's everywhere with you as you are walking around and doing things. And that's what I believe that Jesus believed. That's what Jesus lived. His life was a thoroughly spiritual life. That's what I want to talk about today. In this passage in John 7, as we're looking, um, in John 7, the highlight of this chapter in some ways, the focus of this chapter is when Jesus stands up, it says on the last day of the feast, so this is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles there, and this is the climax of the passage, starting at the back, and Jesus stood up and cried out and says, anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that is a reference to the Spirit being given in Acts after Jesus' death and resurrection, you know, that there came a time where the Spirit, not just this conceptual reality, but the Spirit came in power and in presence among the disciples, and, and, and they became like Jesus in this way. They, they were able to live this spiritual life. So I want to look at this analogy first, and you know, some of you guys might find this sort of analogy of, if anyone thirsts, let him come to drink familiar. Uh, it's because we talked about it several weeks ago when I last preached. I, I talked about how Jesus used this idea of living water to draw this woman at the well to him. And if you think about, again, if we dive into this metaphor of what water is, and what water is to a semi-arid climate of pastoral people, water is life, right? Where there's water, there's things growing. You know, there's green, there's fertility, there's life. Without there's water, there's death, right? And so water is this very powerful image that there's like this essence of what life is, of what thriving, of what fruitfulness is. And this is what Jesus was using to draw in that Samaritan woman at the well. And here he makes this other claim. He says, not only am I the source of this water, but whoever believes in me will become a source of water. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart, out of who inside that person will flow rivers of living water. And so Jesus promises this incredible reality. It's not just, okay, I can give you water, you know, but anyone who believes in me will become fountains of that living of that thriving. So that's an incredible, incredible concept, if you think about it, right? Is that you in the spirits, like what is this supposed to look like? You will be this fountain of thriving, of life, not only for yourself, that you will be thriving and living, but you will be this person that wherever you go, you bless. Wherever you go, you bring life, you bring thriving to. Wherever you go, you know, you give water, you know, to those that are thirsty. So God gives this incredible promise of becoming this, this fruitful person in some ways. And I want to ask you that question, right? Because I think a lot of times, um, I wonder if that is the case for us, you know, is that how you would characterize your life? Would you say that your life is this ever flowing fountain of life, you know, constantly welling up, bringing joy to yourself and fullness to yourself, not only to you, but to those around you. I think about this verse when I think about this idea of a fountain and what it looks like. This is one of my favorite verses in Psalm 16. It says, 
you know, this is David. I think it's David, actually. Don't quote me on that. But the psalmist speaking, and he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And I believe we just saying that actually earlier. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. You know, like when, when we go to God, when we enter in his presence, we find fullness of joy. And this, I think, applies to us when we become these fountains that in some ways we become people in our presence. There is also the fullness of joy that comes from God. I think this is what it looks like to be a fountain. Um, and I think this is a reality, right? I don't think it's just a theoretical sort of thing. And we become the spring of joy for those around us. Now, I want to just clarify real quick that, you know, it doesn't mean that Christians don't, you know, godly people don't, are never sad, you know, we're never mourning. Um, it doesn't mean, I mean, suffering happens. It's one of the things we believe in as Christians. It's, like, it's not that the world is fine and dandy. And, you know, it just, there are really incredibly difficult and painful things. And there are things to cry over and things to lament over. But the person who has a spirit is yet, even in the midst of brokenness, even in the midst of sorrow, always returning to and overflowing with joy. They are the people, they're always the people who have hope, who have light in the midst of times when things are objectively very dark. And that hope and light isn't this kind of band-aid covering. Oh, you know, things aren't as bad as you think it is. No, they are as bad as we think they are, but there's hope, there's something greater and joyful. And, and that is what God, I think, wants us to be. Not just a bunch of religious people who just follow a bunch of rules, who bring death to those around us. You know, some Christians are like that, right? But he wants us to be these people that bless, that full, just all those around us, just wherever we're going. You know, that is what it means to have the spirit. In Psalm 84, I don't have this up here. Um, there's another Psalm that speaks about this concept. It says, you know, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The Valley of Baca is a desert. The, er the early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. This is speaking about us, right? As Christians, as people who have the spirit of God, we go through Valleys of Baca and we make it a place of springs. So spiritual life is joy and thriving in the midst, even in the midst of incredible suffering and brokenness. And you know, for those of us, kind of what I'm asking you guys to be like, okay, is your life this kind of way or not, right? And some of us might be like, you know, I see aspects of that. And some of us might be like, I mean, this is kind of where I was like, that, no, that is not how I feel. And this is not how my life has been. And I want to just say, um, I think what was helpful for me as I was thinking through this passage um, was that just because that doesn't characterize us, doesn't mean we're not Christian, doesn't mean we don't have the spirits. But actually, scripture speaks about how as we become Christian, we have an option to live in the spiritual life. We have this actual option to live in the fleshly life, too. Um, so it's not automatic. You know, it's not as you become Christian, you're just filled with the spirit. And it's like, well, why isn't my life like that? You know, actually, scripture speaks about, yeah, when you become Christian, there is this possibility to overflow and to become this person. You actually have to walk in it. You know, it's not just this thing that happens by default. It's this thing that you have to choose, that God is able to lead you in. Um, and, and then Paul talks about this dichotomy between the spiritual person who's living by the spirit and the fleshy person who's living by the flesh. And it's possible if you're a Christian, even though you have the spirit, to still live in the flesh. 
Um, it's possible, and, and, and I think Christians living in the flesh are the most miserable people around <laughs> because they are designed for something different, but they are living in a way that, you know, there's, God wants so much more from. In Romans, I'm just showing you where I get this from, that I'm not just making this up. It says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So he gives this kind of dichotomy of you can either set your mind on the flesh and it will lead to death, <laughs> or you can set your mind on the spirit and it will lead to life and peace. This is an active choice that we can live in as Christians. In Galatians 5, just another passage, it says, but I say, and he's talking to Christians, right? He's not just talking to people who aren't Christian. He says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify desires of the flesh. Again, this dichotomy between the spirit and the flesh. But the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so there is this tension in the Christian life. And the natural instinct is going to be living by the flesh. Being I mean, Christian, it's not just you automatically just desire like to love people and to, and to do all these things that God is, you know, it's an active effort of putting on, you know, that God empowers us to do, but we still have to do. I was preaching this message actually a long time ago at Grace Life. And there is a pastor, uh, his name Pastor Mike, I think some of you guys know him. He currently is away right now. And you know, and, you know, I, I kind of described it like, yeah, we just need to become more spiritual. And that's just how it is. And he was saying, you know, he took me aside afterwards and he very gently explained to me that that was not really this passage, that it's not just like, oh, you know, 30% spirits, like 80% spirits, you know, he's saying, no, no, no. If you look at the passage, it's actually two entirely different modes. It's more like an on or off switch, you know, for Christians at any given moment, you know, we are either currently at this, at this current moment, we are either living in accordance with the spirits and walking with him, or we are currently following the flesh. Right? There's a, there's, it's like a completely different mode of living that you're living in, right? And in a given day as a Christian, we can spend certain times in like this mode or in another mode. You know, we can, in the morning, we're like, you know, had a good QT and we can be like, yeah, I'm, I'm dialed into God. I'm walking with God. You know, and then later in the afternoon, we kind of just lose track of that. And then we just like go back into our flesh and start doing everything like according to how we normally do things, how we used to do things before we were Christian. And so there is this like, <laughs> this kind of like double sort of like light that's available to Christians that, you know, that Paul is sort of exhorting us to be like, okay, live in the spirit. There's this kind of new life that you can live in. So I want to I bring that up for us because I, I do think that for so many of us, we just sit here and we're like, well, I'm not like that, you know, and, and, we, and we don't realize that, you know, God has actually given us that possibility and desires for us to walk in that kind of way. And I want to show us a little bit later on about what that looks like. But first, I want to go back to the passage and talk a little bit about what spiritual living looks like and how it looks different from fleshly living, from worldly living. So it's interesting because in the chapter of John, and this is stuff I didn't see before, um, but it all kind of relates, I think, to this highlight of spiritual living. Um, because in the chapter of John, it actually, Jesus has a lot of conflicts in this book. Um, and there's, he's constantly in this place where he's going back and forth, back and forth with these people who are just butting heads with him. And it's interesting because as I was studying this passage this week, I was, you know, I always just felt like, okay, they're just arguing 
because they don't know who Jesus is, and that's just what it is. But I didn't realize that in some ways, I think that John gives a picture here, an illustration of what I was talking about in the spirit. He shows how fleshly the world is and how Jesus being a spiritual person is on a completely different wavelength with completely different goals and mindsets and hearts. And that's illustrated through the conflicts between him and the people. So here is conflict number one. I just brought out two of them. I didn't want to you know, overload you with them, but there's like plenty of them in that chapter if you want to read through. So I just highlight two of them in, these chap- in this chapter. In John 7, this is between him and his brothers. Now the, Jew- the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. It's the beginning of the chapter. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And you hear you have, you know, his brothers, maybe they're well-meaning. You know, they're like, Jesus, you want to be a public figure. You want to be a religious leader. You want to be famous. We got it. And, you know, you got the talent to do so. We've seen it, you know. And then so they think according to their just natural mindset, right? Which is like, what would you want, Jesus? Well, what would we want? Well, we would want to be, you know, influential. You know, we would want to be, you know, you know, recognized. You know, we would want to be this kind of big leader. And that's, you know, honestly speaking, that's for us the default of what we see as good and bad, right? We're like, oh, more influence, you know, you know, more kind of impact that you make on someone's life, the better, right? That's just how we naturally think about how things are. And that's kind of what the brothers sort of betray that their kind of perspective is they see Jesus as merely this fleshly person and they think he has the same kinds of goals and same kinds of desires. And they're like, hey, So if you want to do that, why are you working in secret? You ought to go and show yourself to the world. Well, Jesus' reply to them shows that he's on a completely different wavelength. He says to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And this is the funny part. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. And so Jesus kind of makes, he pushes back against his brothers and he challenges them. And he says, yeah, my priorities and goals are completely different. The way I think about what I do is completely different from the way you think about how you do. What you think about is I want X, Y, Z, and I'm going to do X, Y, Z to get, you know, to get the thing I want. But Jesus is saying, my priorities and goals are not about advancing my own agenda. I'm not interested in just fame for the sake of fame. I'm not interested in influence for the sake of influence. No, my priority and goal, what I'm interested in, is living in complete harmony and obedience to my father. That's, that's it. That's, that's what I'm interested in. And anything else, I don't even care if it sounds good or looks good, not interested. I want to live in complete harmony and obedience to my father. So my father says, go, I go. My father says, stay, I stay. My time has not yet come. It's not yet time for me to, you know, ironically, like Jesus will be famous, right? He will be one of the most famous people in history, right? But my time is not yet now. Yes, I'm going to be crucified and you will, you will know nothing about that. And I will be resurrected. I'll be raised up. My time is not yet now. And I'm not interested in pursuing that or just making it happen you know, according to my own timeline or anything, you know, I want to be obedient to the Father. And so Jesus gives this kind of perspective that the person who is spiritually oriented is not seeking to advance their own agenda. What they want out of life 
is to fill God's will, the Father's will. What they want is to be in complete harmony with the Father. Spiritual people make God's agenda their highest good, not their own. They say, your way is best, and I will submit to it, even if it doesn't make sense to me. And it's, you know, a sign for us, you know, that we're not living in the spiritual life when, when we are just going after our own agendas, when we're just doing the things that make sense to us, pursuing those goals. I mean, you know, to be honest, I think it, it's really hard in scripture to say that we are really living according to the spirits. Um, when our goals are off, they're off from what God wants. Another instance that you see, spiritual versus the flesh, number two, this is another part in John. Here, another incident happens. Jesus is in the middle of the feast. He goes up to the temple and he begins to teach. Notice how the Jews respond to him. They say the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so here they show this other different aspect of the flesh versus the spirit, which is that, for lack of a better word, I was thinking of a better word for this, their methodology is different. You know, their strategies, the way they go about things are completely different. Let me explain what that means. Jews see this ordinary, unlearned, blue-collar dude standing up there with dudes with the robes and all the learning and the Harvard PhDs and whatnot. And their natural way of thinking, which is very natural to us, is uh, how did he get there? Like, how does that work? You know, because to them, like, hey, you want to teach? You know, you got to go through the hoops. You know, you got to go through rabbi school. You need to find a prestigious rabbi and you need to learn and you need to memorize all these things and you need to write in Greek and Hebrew. And, you, you know, this is kind of their understanding of the day. You need to do those things. And then, yes, you will be qualified. You will be able to do those things. Right. And Jesus here shows like a completely different perspective about what really makes someone effective. Um, you know, he, he goes and he teaches and, and he doesn't have any of those things. Right. We look at his response. He says, um, Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So he says a couple of things, right? He says, first of all, where my teaching comes from, it comes from God, right? And this shows that the spiritual person isn't looking towards man's methods or man's accomplishments or man's ways of getting things done. He's like, you don't need all that. You know what I mean? To, to, to just like, you know, cut it to the shit. You don't need all that. I get mine directly from God. And that's where it's really at. And not only that, that but you could say, okay, Jesus is son of God. So of course he does that. Then he goes on and he says, anybody can have that too. Notice what he says in this latter part of this message. He says, if any, anyone's will is to do God's will, anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. It's funny because this whole passage is about people debating, how do we know Jesus is the Messiah? And they're like, oh, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. He does this and does this. And he's like, you know what? You want to know whether I really am the Messiah? You know, if anyone's will is to do God's will, you will know it. And so he shows that knowledge is open. And it's ironic because throughout scriptures, you see, you see this trend over and over again, that the people who actually know the real things, like is Jesus the Messiah or not, are the stupid people in some ways. They're the uneducated fishermen. You know, they're the little children who don't really know anything, but they know that God, they know the most important thing, that Jesus 
is the Messiah. It's so interesting to me because I think here Jesus is pointing out this dichotomy of, of man choosing to trust in their own wisdom, in their own strength, in those things, and that leading them completely astray versus the spiritual person trusting and depending, relying on God for the source of their knowledge, the source of their power. I love this passage from 1 Corinthians 1. This is always something I go back to where he just confirms this. He says, you know, this is Paul speaking and he says, you know, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Yes, the gospel sounds stupid sometimes to people who don't understand it, right? Because in this kind of human wisdom sense, it doesn't make sense. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The way the world thinks is that the smarter you are, the more you know. The way God portrays this in this is knowledge doesn't just come from your own smarts. Knowledge comes from being in right relationship with God. And God gives knowledge to wherever he pleases. There's a humility aspect to here that, that this is why sometimes the greatest scientists of our generation who know so much about the universe don't know the most fundamental thing about the universe, which is that it's all about God. It's not in there in physics. You can't find gods by just being really good at math or physics. I mean, those things aren't opposed to God either, right? But they, a lot of those things are constructed on our own understanding, on our own abilities to understand. And there are limits to those things, but true spiritual knowledge comes from humility and receiving it from God. I love this passage. I always go to this when I, when I preach. And this is kind of how I was feeling, you know, coming up to preach this time, you know, just, I love that Paul says this. So I always look at this and I'm like, you know what, if I ever give a bad sermon, you know, look at Paul, you know, like Paul, the apostle Paul is great man himself. You know, he wasn't, I don't know if you guys know this, but Paul was not a good speaker. Like he was not eloquent. I mean, so many times, you know, I, I wonder sometimes when we go to churches, you know, I'm guilty of this myself, you know, and I'm not saying this just to justify, you know, myself, but, you know, but I wonder so many times, you know, when we look into, when we go to a service, how much we're like, oh, you know, worship was good, you know, sermon was good, this was good, you know, these things were just went according to the box, and it feels like a performance in some ways, and that's not what church is at all. Church is not a performance. Church is the body gathered together to talk about Jesus, and, and there's brokenness in there, and that's okay, right? Look at what Paul, when he says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's talking to the Greeks. I could have gone there debating, using all these Greek terms, sounding smart. I didn't do any of that. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not because I didn't know anything else, but I chose to pursue this way. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul demonstrates the spiritual person in this case. He's like, I'm not going to go in there relying on myself. I'm not going to go in there relying on what makes sense to me, on my abilities, on you know, my eloquence. 
want any of those things. I'm going to go in there, even though I have some of those things, I'm going to go in there relying completely on the power of God because I know that's the only way anything is going to get done. I know that's the only way you're actually going to believe. I know that's the only way you're going to actually see God and be like, wow, God is real. There really is power in him. I feel like this is just something I, you know, I, I challenge you to think about, you know, in your day to day. Throughout this week, I just noticed so many instances where my natural instinct as a fleshly person is to just solve the problem myself. You know, church is having a problem. These two people are having a conflict. All right, well, let's get them together in a room. Let's, you know, make, make them talk through it and we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, oh, this thing didn't work. You know, my car broke down. You know, car's breaking down a lot lately. You know, oh, I have to take the auto shop. I need to get it done. I do these things. You know, we operate with the sense that like, okay, the only way things will happen is if I make it happen. That's not how God sees things, right? And, and I, I want to challenge you guys to think about every time you run into an issue, however small, however tiny it is, you know, to think about what would it look like for you to exercise your faith by praying first? Your car broke down. Okay, before I call insurance <laughs> and before I call, you know, AAA or whatever, what would it look like for me to be like, God, you are still sovereign over the universe. You're in complete control. You could get this car to work if you wanted to right now. You know, I'm going to take this time to submit myself to your will, to ask what you're doing through this, you know, and to depend on you, even if I feel tempted to want to solve it myself. That's something I'm really convicted of living in. Boy, I can tell you even this week trying to live that out was hard. Like, there's so many times I was just like, okay, can I just not do this? Can I just default to like solving it myself? It's just so much easier when I do it myself, you know, but that's not how Jesus lived. And that's not how I think God calls us to live as people who are spiritual beings. So the first is, I think the, sp- the goals of a spiritual person are different. The methods, the ways that a spiritual person goes about is different. And so I want to, um, I'm going to skip this last part, uh, but I want to end really quickly I want to just kind of transition to maybe a more practical section of what it looks like to pursue spiritual living for us. Um, Hopefully I've convinced you that the Christian ought to be spiritual and what that looks like. But I want to point us now to how scripture, I think, challenges us and pushes us to how we can actually live the spiritual life out. And when I look at scripture, I think of three things. The first is pursue faith, pursue faith. Um, Jesus, in this very great promise for um, the spirit coming, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The condition is clear. Whoever believes in me. We can't have the spirit if we're not in right relationship with God. And right relationship with God happens through faith. If anyone does not know God here, right? You can't talk about like spiritual living, you know, when we do not have faith in God. This is what Jesus is saying is the first step through belief, through belief, we are reconciled to God, through belief in who Jesus is, that he is indeed the King of Kings, the son, the son of God, the Messiah who's come to save us the world. Um, that this is Jesus, that in faith in him, we are reconciled. And that's where we start. You know, we have to always go back to that. Um, without that, there's no spirit, right? Um, and I, I want to challenge us for some of us who are Christian, you know, Um, that I think unbelief is a major, major, major barrier to spiritual living. And I'm not saying doubts, you can't doubt, you can't have questions. I spent a lot of uh, the last few years doubting over things, you know. Um, 
But there is kind of a sense of unbelief, which is, Lord, I'm not going to believe. I know you're saying this, but I'm not going to believe it. It's willful opposition to the Lord and to the way he's working. It's not doubt, which happens normally. You know, doubt is, I don't know if God, you're going to work this, to be honest. Unbelief is willful opposition to God. I'm not going to believe. And that, my friends, as Christians, if you guys are in that place, is a very, very damaging thing to your relationship with God. You cannot live in the Spirit when you are set on opposing him in certain areas of your life. Um, there must be this faith, this willingness, this openness to be like, okay, God, even though I have questions, I trust you, and we're going to start there. So it starts with faith. Whoever believes in me will have the Spirit. Second, pursue prayer. And I think this is really the meat of it. This is what I've been kind of seeing more and more this, for myself this week, as I've been trying to practice this myself. I really think the heart of connection to God isn't even reading the Bible and scripture, but it's fundamentally, it's prayer. Because prayer of all the things that we do in church is actual connection to God. It's talking to God. Everything else, we talk about God. I'm talking to, about God right now. In small group, we talk about God. But in prayer, we talk to God. In prayer, we abide in him. We directly connect with him. And I, boy, as I'm reading through scriptures, I'm really believing, you know, when Paul says, pray unceasingly, he actually means that. And that's so hard for the fleshly person. You're like, what? Like, you know, I pray once a week. Isn't that good enough? But no, Paul's like, prayer should be every aspect of your life. You should be always praying. That should just be the, the breathing in and out of being Christian praying constantly. I think for some of us, I want to challenge you to think about why for some of us prayer was a, is a burden and obligation versus for Jesus, it was a delight and it was a refuge. Jesus loved to pray, not because he was forced to pray. That was, his, that was his abiding in the spirit. When he had a really rough day, healing all these people and exercising all these demons, Jesus didn't just crash on the couch and he's like, you know what? I'm just going to watch the Netflix. I deserve it. You know? He went to a desolate place and he's like, boy, I need to get recharged right now. I need to spend time with the Lord. I need to spend time with my heavenly father. Prayer was about connection with him. You know, when he was about to go to the cross and be crucified, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get my friends together and, you know, just like, write me encouragement and like, you know, help me to. No, he was like, what I need right now and what I need alone is God. And I need to be in the presence of God because this is going to be freaking hard and I don't really want to do it but I know I need God right now to do the hardest thing, the, the, the thing that I'm the most tempted to disobey ever in my life. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, you know, on his knees crying out to God saying, <laughs> that's where he got his strength from. That's where he was restored. Prayer was a delight and refuge for Jesus. And that's how I think it ought to be for us too. And everything that we do, we have this opportunity to find rest, to find refuge, to find connection to God. I want to challenge us in one specific way. Every time you feel stress and anxiety, look at it as an opportunity for prayer. This stress and anxiety, I think, at least for me, is oftentimes a check engine light, right? That like, I'm trusting in my own capabilities. Why am I stressed? Because I'm thinking about how am I supposed to get it done? And I don't see a good way to get it done right now. So I'm stressed, you know? It's an, it's an, it's an indication that I'm not really depending on God right now, that what I'm looking to and depending on is myself. So I think there's this constant returning to prayer that I want to challenge us to be doing. And finally, in that prayer, what specifically do we do in that prayer? I think it's this. When I look at Jesus, I think it's pursuing 
God, the Father, his heart and mind, constantly pursuing God's heart and mind. So what we should be doing in this prayer isn't just saying a bunch of stuff, but this aligning process of just being like, God, where is your heart? And how can my heart be attached to your heart? Where is your mind? How can my mind be where your mind is? In terms of heart, I think of valuing the things that God values. You know, in terms of mind, I think of choosing to think the way that God thinks about things. I think for a lot of us, we're like, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody walking like a very hyperactive dog, you know, and it's just like, it's just like, you know, the dog is going there, it's sniffing this person, and this person's just like holding on for dear life. And, you know, sometimes I think about that image and I think about that dog being like us because our distra- our tensions are like this, you know, like five minutes later, I'm like, ooh, like nice, that's shiny. Like that's, you know, oh, wait, maybe I should be thinking, you know, our values are constantly under assault from the world from around us, from our own temptations from outside of us. And prayer is like that leash that like hangs us onto God in some ways, right? It's this constant returning and being like, okay, I don't need that. I need this. I need God. You know, oh, my values aren't just about trying to increase my wealth and my fame and whatever things. My values are God's kingdom and God's will. And prayer is this constant thing that connects us to that. So I think in prayer, it's pursuing God's heart, his values, and pursuing God's mind, right? Sometimes we have God's heart, but we don't think the way he thinks. Like, God, we really want your kingdom to come, but we need to accomplish it by doing all these things. And God says, think the way I do. See things the way I do. And boy, how refreshing it is when we finally, when we are able to rest, when we're able to have integrity, when we're able to have this sense of closeness with God's heart and his mind. That's something that I want to challenge for us today. Um, Romans 12, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This should be happening constantly, right, throughout the day in our prayers. So as we're, you know, just close with this message, I want to just give us some practical application time, you know, to just, first of all, just be in the spirits. And, you know, for those of us who are just feeling like, man, this has not been something I've been living, you know, maybe perhaps just take this time as a way to reconnect with God and to perhaps restart, um, to perhaps make a commitment to be like, okay, like, it's hard, but this week I'm going to try. I'm going to try to abide in your presence. So I'm going to guide us through some prayer, um, if you guys want to pray with me. Let's first just take some time to quiet down your heart and sit before God. Um, I forgot who it was I I talked to, but but I think they, they talked about how it's just nice just to let God have the first word sometimes. Just to spend that minute or two without necessarily going to him with anything. But just saying, Lord, I'm here. You deserve my attention. Speak to me. Be with me. Let's take some time to do that. <clears throat> 